But we as a church have been going through a series called Restored. And the big idea behind this series is that we as a church have been coming before our God this year saying, listen, we're tired of the routine. We're tired of just going through the motions. And what I think every single one of us needs is a fresh ignition of God's life in our lives. And so that we can encounter Him in such a real way that it is unmistakably the presence of Jesus meeting us. And so this particular series is just based on the observation that when we see the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, He is not encountering people at their point of strength, but rather at their point of weakness and need. Very often meeting them at their point of pain. Why does he do that? Because he knows he needs to get through the external layers of our personalities, our masks, the layers we show the world to protect what's going on inside of here. And he knows this is where we really need him. And so the series has demanded vulnerability and honesty from every single one of us, which is not easy. And today, heads up, is going to be no different because today we're speaking about those of us, which, by the way, is all of us, that at some point we stand before others, we stand before God with a deep sense of, I'm ashamed. A deep sense of shame. Now, recently, in the last few years, I've discovered that we in South Africa use the word shame in a number of unique ways. One comes from kind of the Afrikaans side of things, where you see a cute puppy, a cute kitty, and you go, ach, sis doch shame. Right? And and, and another way we use this in English, which I found the the, the Americans and the, the English from the UK, they don't use the word this way. And that is when someone's sharing about a rough week or just a tough experience that they've had, and we go, ach, shame, man. Ach, shame. Now, now we're not heaping shame on them. We're trying to connect with them. We're trying to show them compassion and empathy. But that is a very South African thing. And so we're not talking about shame That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something deeper, something far more universal, something that is such a part of our lives. And listen, when I'm standing up most weeks, but especially a week like today, I'm so aware that a lot of this stuff happens in our blind spots. A lot of the stuff is working and operating in places of our lives that we're unaware of, at least at a conscious level. However, I have become convinced by both my own experience, my pastoral experience, but most importantly from the Scriptures, that the presence of shame in our lives is probably one of the most core things when it comes to the human experience. And in fact, it is probably one of the most important, and I don't mean that in a good sense, but it is there, driving our choices, driving our behaviors, and driving our responses in life. And so whenever we talk about something that is so universal, almost always, in fact, I would argue in 
all the occasions, we can go and find those themes in the opening pages of Scripture. And so as we go to the opening pages of Scripture, we recognize in in chapter 1 and chapter 2, God makes all things, God makes all things good, and He makes the mountains and the sea and the platypus and the giraffe and even the parktown prawn, and for some reason He calls it all good. And then He makes man and woman and He calls it good. And then chapter 2 ends off with the statement, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now I've learned to realize that when biblical authors include certain details, that is never by accident. And so the question we have to ask is, well, we kind of knew they were naked. We didn't have Pep and Ackermans and Edgars yet. But, but why the detail about but no shame? And that's a brilliant question to hold on to as we go further into this message. So to maybe get us onto the same page, I would like to offer one of the better definitions of shame that I've seen. And it comes by a guy called Ed Welch, who wrote a book called Shame Interrupted. And this is how he defines shame. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable. This is at the level of your identity, that you are unacceptable because of three things. Either something you did, number two, something done to you, or number three, something associated with you. And as a result of this feeling of unacceptability, you feel exposed and humiliated. So I just want to talk through those three areas. And one of the reasons we feel shame is often because of something you did. And this is where it is so deeply connected to our sinful condition. That when we sin, not only at some level at the area of conscience or conviction, do we become aware that we have transgressed. Be it we've hurt somebody, we've broken down a relationship, we've gone against God. And at some level, yes, my conscience speaks to me, but at a deeper level. There is something that starts to contaminate our very souls. And I believe one of the ways the Scriptures describe this is shame. And it becomes like this ink stain deep inside of my identity that I cannot do anything about. For some of you guys, and maybe even for some of you ladies, if you've ever been in the situation where you're cleaning your car, servicing your car, and something comes along and brushes your nose and you wipe your face, and now you've got to stay in there as well. Or something drops on your pants, you try to wipe it off, and all you're doing is spreading the stain of that grease and that gunk. And so where we've betrayed people, we betrayed trust, we've hurt people, we've knowingly and ongoingly acted in unloving and ungodly ways, shame grows within of our hearts. For those of you who are experiencing habitual addiction, shame is an ever-present reality. People who struggle with non-acceptable sexual attractions experience the shame. And maybe it's not always sin necessarily, but shame still accompanies some of the non-sinful things we do. Like, for example, some of our failures at home, failures at work. Some of our failures are connected to sin, some aren't. Just something went wrong. The business deal went south. Right? I, I lost my job. 
I'm in a difficult financial position as a result of even some of my best decisions, and yet here we are. And because of what I've done, there is a shame that grows deep within me. The second area is something done to you. You know, one of the greatest dangers of abuse and abandonment, whether it be parent-child, parent-parent in, in marriage, divorce, is not only must that person experience the tragedy of that pain, but in 99.9999999% of the times, that person internalizes it to the degree where they start to experience their own shame and at some level start to believe, well, I must have deserved that. It must be because of who I am or who I'm not. There's something about me that is unacceptable. And therefore, at some level, this is on me. And, and the shame grows like a stain in our hearts. Those who have been on the receiving end of unfaithfulness in marriage. The receiving end of demeaning words, parents and teachers and friends and spouses telling us we're useless. And those words land deep in our hearts. And then they come up in our own minds with our own voice attached to those statements. Often just children of, or spouses of just people with angry outbursts at some level start to believe this is not just your issue, but clearly I deserve this and I am unacceptable because of your rage. This is all the shame that grows within us. And sometimes it's something associated with you. And parents, maybe you've experienced this when your kids no longer want you to drop them off anywhere. Because it's no longer cool. It's lame, right? Because by association, they're feeling some sort of teenage level of shame. Now, don't take it personally, but to go seriously, sometimes it's just simply because I can't have the right clothes. I can't have the right lifestyle. I'm always feeling left out. And because of my association or lack of association, I start to grow in my sense of shame within me. Sometimes it's the skeletons in the family closets. Either the ones we speak about or the ones we never dare speak about. But because of those skeletons, that ink stain like a virus moves onto me as well and affects, affects my own sense of identity and shame. Often, and this is, by the way, this is not only a hot topic here in South Africa, but it's a global hot topic. Where sometimes just simply because of my racial association, where across the board there are different narratives trying to make you believe that because of your racial association, there is something unacceptable about you growing our sense of shame within us. And so the shame leaves us with a sense that there's something wrong with me. I am unacceptable. We often see this in our self-talk, and I know we can laugh it off. But something goes wrong. Ah, oh, Stephen, you're such an idiot. Oh, Stephen, you're so pathetic. You're so worthless. But where did that come from? And as much as we try to laugh that off, if, if we dare stop to think about where that's going and where that's coming from, we might realize it goes a lot deeper than we pretend to imagine. Shame also doesn't know class boundaries. I mean, we have 
people with almost nothing that can have a strong, healthy sense of self. And we can have people in this world with everything that are just driven by the shame in their lives. Also, just before we go back to this passage, I want to talk about a few things that may seem similar to shame and they may be related to shame, but they are not the same thing as shame. And so, for example, shame is not the same as guilt. Guilt is when you have legitimately done something wrong and maybe you feel super bad about that. And, and the truth is, if we've done something wrong and we've damaged a relationship, we've gone against God's will, at some level, we ought to feel bad about that. And, and the response is not to go, ah, poor me. The response is, let me take responsibility for the thing that I have done wrong. That would be a healthy response. And so a healthy response to guilt means you could potentially experience guilt without shame. But what shame says is not only have I done wrong, but I am wrong. Can you see the difference? And so often, the person driven by shame experiences guilt, even where there is no true guilt, because they're always taking on everyone else's guilt onto themselves, because at some core level, they believe they deserve it. Also, shame is not the same as embarrassment. Embarrassment is fleeting. And sometimes this even happens to us as adults. You wake up and there's a big pimple on your nose. And you go to checkers and maybe some kid uh, points it out and, and everyone giggles a little bit. And yes, we're going to feel embarrassed, right? But usually embarrassment is fleeting and lasts an hour or two, maybe a week or two, and then we can laugh about it. We never laugh about shame. We never laugh about the things that shame us. Because it's the core of our soul that is stained as part of my identity. Now, going back to this verse, describing Adam and Eve being naked without shame, answering the question, why is that pointed out? Well, what's the relationship between being naked and ashamed? I'm sure most of us have had that experience of waking up and the last thing you dreamt was you were standing up in school and then you looked down and you had no clothes on. Now, we never wake up from those dreams just, you know, feeling amazing about ourselves. We wake up feeling fearful, fearful, humiliated, and ashamed. And so this passage tells of a time where there is no body shame. There's no fear of criticism. No one's done anything wrong. Both Adam and Eve are known and loved and accepted by each other and God. No one felt exposed. No one felt the need for self-protection. And oh, that sounds amazing, except for maybe all of us being naked together apart. But as for the rest of it, this sounds awesome, right? So how long did this last? Well, can you see my Bible here? On your left is how long it lasted. On your right is what God's been doing to sort it out since then. So as the story continues, God says, listen, in this place, you've got absolute freedom to enjoy each other, enjoy my creation, enjoy the good things that I give you, enjoy me and my good presence, just that one tree. Don't eat of that fruit. 
But there was an antagonist even in this place that tempted Adam and Eve. Tencent to distrust God and God's way and God's love. And then let's pick it up from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized... They were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. So here they are, according to that first part of the definition by Ed Welch. Prior to this, they were naked and unashamed. Now they sinned, they did something, and we start to see the relation between the things I do and the resultant shame in my life. Because they sinned, and now they started to see everything so differently including the very obvious fact that they hadn't been wearing clothes at all. And yet now they felt the need to cover up and to hide. And this is so just uniquely human. I mean, I've got a big donutty black Labrador. And, uh, you know, Come winter, sun, shine, whatever. She's just happy running around in her fur coat. I know some of you have little handbag dogs and sometimes you put a little jersey on them and, you know, that's your thing. And, but here's the thing. Why is it that animals run around completely naked with no shame? And yet why is it that we as humans find ourselves in these exact opposite conditions? finding ourselves not only physically but at a soul level, unpresentable before God and others. And so Adam and Eve, they cover themselves up. They go into self-protection mode and they hide. And in the same way, because of being in this human condition, there is something so default within us. You know, last week we spoke about, uh, sorry, two weeks ago, We spoke about how we project and protect. How we work so hard to put on a false image. We cultivate a sense of who we think we are or who we think we ought to be for everybody around us, often to the point where we lose complete touch of who we actually are. But we do that to project. It's our fig leaves. And we also do it to protect Because there's a shame within me and I'm not willing to go there. And so we do different things. We use different fig leaves. We put on these layers, these personas. We lie. We euphemize. We tend to just watch our social behavior connected to our shame and our sin. We tend to move away from those 
when we're with them, we maybe feel like there's more light and therefore we're more exposed. And we tend to become far more comfortable with those who are just accepting the disguise of our layers of our false self. Because it's safe. I don't have to go there. And most tellingly, we hide from God. Oh, we come up with all the excuses in the world. Why we're running from God. Why we're turning from God. Why we're not around people maybe where there is a little bit more light. We keep God at arm's length. And by the way, we are brilliant at doing this in church. Where we put up the religious facade. We wear those religious masks and everybody looks at us going, wow, that's a great Christian. And all the while, at a very deep level, all we're doing is projecting and protecting so we don't allow God into our place of shame. Because it's so hard. Don't want to go there. Which is so weird. We're in the self-protection mode, hiding from the only one who truly loves us. And sometimes the people who truly love us. So if that's the problem, what's the solution? And here's where I believe another one of our human instincts can be so deceiving. Because our human instincts want to say, Stephen, just give me five things to do. Preferably alliterated, easy to remember, so I can deal with my shame. And you know what that is? That's fig leaves. Here's what you can do to sort out your shame. And so this is where I think we need to look at the other major character in the story. And this is God. We see in verse 9, this is God responding to them. But the Lord, He's walking towards them. And the Lord calls to them, where are you? Now God is not ignorant. This is not a game of hide and seek. God knows exactly what's going on. And because of that, wow, man, he could walk straight up to wherever they were hiding. Hey, gotcha. Saw what you did. Saw how you failed. And in doing that, increased the shame. And I think that is what Adam and Eve were afraid of. And yet, what does God do? By calling out, I think he tries to show them, number one, that he is making the first move towards them. And number two, I'm 100% convinced God wants them to realize some of the inner workings of what has just happened. And so they have a choice. God moves towards me. He's calling me to step towards him. And on one hand, God is not seeking to just humiliate me and expose me. However, he is calling me to step into the light where I will be exposed. And it comes down to who do I think God is? Is he going to be one more person to shame me in the light once all of this is out there? Or is he going to love me? And Adam is honest. He says we hid because we were afraid. We were afraid. And I believe behind all of our bravado and our, our false selves, we're actually afraid. And this is why shame is so dangerous. And this is why it drives so much of our behavior. Because it is a mechanism within us 
that causes us to cover up. It is a mechanism within us that causes us to hide. And sometimes we're hiding in plain sight, but we're hiding. It causes us to isolate ourselves from people, especially those who may be in the light and we feel in their presence, I feel more exposed. So I'm going to hide over here with people that I'm not as exposed with. Once again, betraying a fear that I have. And sometimes when it comes to people, it's a well-founded fear because they have shamed us. And unfortunately, that happens all too often in churches as well. But then we put that onto God. We hide from Him too. And we isolate from Him too. And I'm convinced in most cases, we are being driven by our own shame. Our hearts are afraid of the only one who can love us and help us and save us. And so this verse, verse 9 and 10, is showing us a God who takes the first move. And if we fast forward to the New Testament, isn't that exactly what we see in Jesus Christ? Instead of God being up there in heaven, hey guys, sort yourselves out. He enters our world. He takes on human flesh. He takes on our limitations, our reality, and He takes on our sin. He takes on our shame. Man, Jesus goes around touching the untouchables. God making the first move. And in every single scenario, Jesus is not again going, hey, gotcha. Look at how you've messed up. Look at how pathetic you are. Last week, we heard such a tragic and yet beautiful story about that woman who struggled with 12 years of ongoing bleeding and the resultant shame, both internally, spiritually, religiously, communally, that she would have been living with. And how, oh man, if only I can touch the hem of Jesus' garment. That, that means I've got to be in the public place where people despise me. But I, I'm going to risk just kind of KGB, going undercover here and just touching the hem of Jesus' garment, which he does. And then Jesus does her worst nightmare. Who touched me? Adam and Eve, where are you? He's not calling her into the light to humiliate her, but to respond to his power, his grace, his restoration, his healing, and to show her that the light in the presence of our God is the safest place to be. And then we see Jesus on the cross. Not only does he not reject us in our sin and shame, not only does he move towards us and bless us, but he also takes on our sin, taking on our shame. Hebrews 12, 2 is a verse that speaks about this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Some of your translations say despising its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Think about the kinds of things that shame us in our lives. And then think about the experience of Jesus on the cross. Man, I just, unless it's a, a good kind of mate to just kind of, you know, poking fun with me. Ah, I just hate being mocked. And yet Jesus was, was mocked. 
Just if any of you have ever experienced betrayal, Jesus experienced betrayal. If any of you at work or family have been falsely accused and the shame that comes with that, Jesus was falsely accused, publicly flogged, publicly spat on, publicly mocked, and lying there or being hung there on the cross, most likely either fully or almost naked. Talk about Jesus experiencing the human condition of shame. And yet what does Hebrews 12 to say? It says that he scorned the shame. He despised the shame. He shamed shame. As much as shame tried to shame him, he by his victory over death, his victory over sin, his victory over shame, he shamed shame. And the shame that brings us down and messes with our identity, Jesus shamed in order that he may give us salvation and life and restore us and give us healing. And so long before, and we're not even gonna go, go there today, long before church, here's your five steps. Long before that, it's inviting us. And I believe God is inviting us even today to see, simply to see, this is where we need God's Spirit. To see the God who moves towards you. As much as people have rejected us, betrayed us, as much as people have rubbed us in our shame, that is not how God loves us. Jesus Himself moves towards you. And just like God knowing exactly where Adam and Eve were hiding. Man, He sees us. He sees us in our shame. He sees us in our sin. He sees us through the cultivated layers of nonsense. He sees exactly who we are in our brokenness, in our sin, in our sense of inadequacy and loss. And yet He moves towards us and He loves us. And He meets us there as painful as it is. And we see how that ink stain of shame he took onto himself on the cross in order that he may breathe new life into us. So we need to look at the God who moves towards us. We need to look at the promise of Romans 10, 11. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. That is a promise we can take to the bank. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. We can look at Hebrews 2.11 just to show how Jesus is not ashamed of you by association. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call you and me brothers and sisters. And here is where there is another way that God acts towards us in our shame that is so counterintuitive to the way the world works or even how we think things ought to work. Because generally, the world's answer to our shame is at some level, maybe some counseling, but at the end of the day, what you need is to believe in yourself again and to have some self-esteem. As if you can be built up again on your own as this, you know, this individual entity, and then you'll be okay. And then often in churches, we treat Jesus like the same way. 
He's my therapist. There's something wrong with me. I go to him. He fixes me up, makes me feel awesome about myself, and then I go back to my own life. And while I do believe Christians should have a healthy sense of self and even a healthy self-confidence in as much that I'm not really even thinking about myself. I'm just responding to who I am in Jesus. The answer to our shame is that Jesus restores us in relationship. So it's less about building you up and it's more about saying, Stephen, this is now who you are in me. This is who you are in me. This brother and sister, think how scandalous this sounds. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are holy are of the same family. I think I've used this before. Just imagine going outside and helicopter picks you up and just says, as of now, you're one of the royal family. It's like, what? That'll never happen. And yet the King of Kings says that of you. And it is in relationship as we depend on and rely on and relate to the author of life and love, as he moves towards us, we move towards him, as we abide in him, as we depend on him, as we relate to him. He breathes life into us, restoring us and sustaining us and redefining our identity in him. And I can guarantee you that that is the only way that that ink stain in your heart starts to move backwards. doesn't happen overnight because it's not about a quick fix. It's about a relationship. A life-giving relationship. And so when it comes to our shame, church, the question is, is Jesus enough? Is he enough or do you want the quick fix? Do you want your solution? Do you want the three steps? Or this morning, are you prepared to go, I see God moving towards me in Jesus. And I believe that he is enough for me. And that somehow, as I see, he carried my shame on the cross, shaming my shame, scorning my shame, despising my shame. And as, he, as much as he does want to stand me up on my own two feet, not as this self-existent entity, but rather as one who is living in a dependent relationship with him, that that is where we find life and identity. And so every single one of us is going to face a decision this morning. And we have some time. And so I want to invite every single one of us to make a decision and find a way of responding to him that is at a high level declaring that Jesus is enough to meet me at my shame. Maybe some of you are sitting here this morning saying, okay, Stephen, that's great, but I'm sitting here where I'm watching on YouTube and I'm not a Christian, so this doesn't really apply to me. What if being a Christian is not just going to church, doing the right thing, getting baptized? None of that stuff saves you. What if being a Christian is seeing Jesus as the good God who moved towards you, 
who saw you for who you are and loved you anyway and scorned your shame and pours life into you. And so maybe some of us face a different option is, is that too good to be true? Is that who you truly are, Jesus? And I'm even praying right now that His Spirit is opening the eyes of our heart to see Him in that exact way. So I want to pray for us. I want to pray through those areas, those three areas of shame. Shame in our lives because of things you've done. Shame in our lives because of things done to us. And shame in our lives because of things or people or actions that we're associated with. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that as much as some of us may be feeling very vulnerable right now, that you just overwhelm us with the sense of this is the safest place to be, not because of the people around me, but because of you. So Lord, I pray for those of us who are feeling shame because of things we've done. And I, I don't need to help us define those things. They're already top of mind. They're screaming at us. They're condemning us right now. But in Christ, there is now no condemnation. You don't condemn us, Jesus. And so God, I pray that you would break the power of shameful condemnation, be it the voice of people in our lives, the voice of our own self, or the voice of our enemy, that we are not condemned by you, Jesus. Speaking to that woman caught in adultery, where are your accusers? Oh, they are gone. Well, neither do I accuse you. Jesus, for those of us who are carrying around, and yes, in this real world, we sometimes have to live with some of the practical consequences of the things we've done, but we don't have to carry around our shame. So Jesus, meet us there, reach out your hand, take the step towards us. And maybe at this point we are feeling least deserving. And that is the point where, man, we are most ready to receive from you. Holy Spirit, pour the love and acceptance of Jesus into our hearts right now. Cleanse us of our shame. Father, I want to pray for those of us who are feeling ashamed, not because of things we've done, but things done to us. And maybe at some level, it, it's just... I don't know why I feel ashamed because of these things done to me. I just know that, man, my sense of self has been knocked around. And I don't love myself. I don't let people love me. And I know at a head level, it wasn't my fault. And yet I feel so unlovable. Jesus, would you break the power of those lies right now? Would you free us and release us from that shame? Would we trust you with our pain? Our shame and our brokenness. You are good.
And Lord, some of us carry shame because of some association. Someone we're ashamed in our family, our nuclear family, our extended family, maybe our racial identity. Maybe these proverbial skeletons in the closets. And again, logically, it makes no sense. I just know I'm carrying shame because of my association with someone else or something else. Father God, meet us there. We release our shame to you. We release this person, this thing to you. We thank you that you call us brothers and sisters. You are not ashamed to be with us. You're not ashamed to touch us. You're not ashamed to engage us. You're not ashamed to be closely associated with us and for us to be associated with you. And that is the opinion that matters above all things. And again, we may know that with our minds, but God, would you land that so deeply in our hearts, cleansing us of our shame. Church, I'm just going to, I know this is maybe a bit unusual, but I've just so often seen, especially recently, how God works in the space we create for Him. And it, you know, we just want to get to the next thing, the next activity. They give us just another minute or two. As we patiently just rest and receive in the presence of Jesus.